0: I want to speak to you today on the subject of the Kingdom Reign of Jesus. Our main text is going to be from 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you want to make your way there, I'll read that passage here in just a moment. So we think about the Kingdom Reign of Jesus at this Christmas time and the implications of God becoming man and dwelling among us, uh, taking on flesh. We think about all the different kingdoms of the earth and all the different kings and rulers and authorities and powers. And there have been great kingdoms in the past, great authorities in the past, and there are great ones in the present that are more powerful than others. And there will be great ones in the future if Jesus tarries his coming. But Jesus brought us something altogether different in the kingdom of God, a rule and reign that will last forever forever with a significance that is beyond a temporary earthly focus. And there's a line in the familiar Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. So today we celebrate the fact that Jesus brought the glory from heaven to earth and that we get to give the glory back to him for who he is and all that he has done. And there are three main offices that are spoken of in the Old Testament, and those offices are prophet, priest, and king. The role of the prophets in the Old Testament was to speak the Word of God to the people, both in foretelling what was to come from the message of God, as well as foretelling the truth of God to them. Priests served as mediators between people and God, so they had the role of bringing offerings and prayers and sacrifices and everything that went along with being a priest. And then kings would rule over God's people as well as serve as a sort of a deliverer. And the office of king in the Old Testament is illustrated by David, who is the focus of 2 Samuel 7 initially and then ultimately the Messiah. God promised David that his house and his kingdom would endure forever forever. And his throne will be established forever. The promise was fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Christ, who is also given the title in the scripture, the Son of David. Jesus is the Son of David. He's the rightful king. So we can say that he is the ruler of God's people and the deliverer. And unlike those temporary kings, he's permanent. And his work is finished. His rule and reign are forever. Now, drawing these points together, normally, the three offices, prophet, priest, and king, were distinct from one another. What's unique in part about Jesus Christ is that he fulfills all three roles at once. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Second Samuel 7 tells of the Lord giving King David rest from all of his enemies around him. David had reflected on what he could do for the Lord, so the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan speaks the message from God to David. He's asking him what he's thinking, and then he tells him what he's going to do. And God did not want David to build the temple. Remember that David was a man of war. And because David was a man of war, uh, God did not want him to build the temple, but David still wanted to respond by doing whatever he could do to prepare for it. So 1 Chronicles 29 tells us that David gathered all of the materials for building the temple so that his son Solomon could build a glorious house for God. God reminds David what he's done for him in raising him up. He had made his name great in all the earth. He had promised David under his reign that he would establish a permanent Israel. And God knew that David as a shepherd was concerned for the people. So let's begin reading 2 Samuel 7. I want to drop all the way back to verse 8, and I'm going to go through verse 17. We read here the words from God through the prophet Nathan to King David, beginning in verse 8. So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Now verse 12. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Verse 17, Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. 2 Samuel 7, along with 1 Chronicles 17 and a couple of other passages in the Scripture, are all about the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with his servant David, and in turn, the promise that God made to David, to Israel, and on behalf of his kingdom, over which Jesus, the Messiah, his son, would rule and reign. And God spoke through the prophet Nathan to remind him of all of these things. David had been a shepherd. God raises him up to be a ruler over Israel, the covenant people of God. He had come from humble beginnings. The Lord was with him. He had cut off his enemies from in front of him and behind him. He was faithful to David in his lifetime. And God promised that he would continue his covenant in the future. But here's the key. It would be even after David was gone. And we're going to make the connection on this. David wanted to build a house for God, but at being a man of war, he couldn't do that. But the Lord told him, oh yeah, he was going to build a house. And that house was going to be a dynasty. And his kingdom would not end at David's death. God said he would raise up a descendant from David after David was gone. And one of his descendants would sit on the throne after him and God would establish his kingdom just as he had established David's kingdom. Now, each of these promises was partially fulfilled in Solomon. Solomon was David's son, but they were not ultimately fulfilled in Solomon. They would be ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. God's mercy would never depart Solomon, even though Solomon did things that weren't wise, even though he had all the wisdom in the world, even though he was guilty of iniquity against God even though he wasn't in a spiritual place where he should be often, God still used him. And Solomon would build the Lord a magnificent temple, a magnificent place to worship. Then the Lord made a statement that reached out beyond Solomon, David's son, in this passage. In verse 13, he said he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And notice the phrasing. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. That is a direct connection to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews actually quotes this verse referring to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. Since the Son has the full character of the Father, then the future seed, uh, the descendant of David, would have the same essence as God. God promised His steadfast love would not depart from His Son. So what we know about the covenant of God and these promises that we find here are that they are unconditional. And the ultimate descendant, the Messiah, would come to a glorious, eternal kingdom, and that promise would not change. Now, clearly, there are some present-future aspects of this prophecy in terms of Solomon and then uh, Jesus, the Messiah, who was to come. They point us out even way further in the future, uh, in the millennial kingdom, and then the new heavens and the new earth. I'll touch on that here in just a moment. But the prophets foretold a greater fulfillment of these promises than what's written here in the anticipation of it in Second Samuel uh, chapter 7. Isaiah 9 in verse 6 and 7, Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order and establish it from this time forward, even forever. So we find Christmas in Second Samuel of all places. And the Lord says to David in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. The only way that could be a reality was through Jesus, that the house of God, the kingdom of God, the throne of God, are completely fulfilled in Jesus, and he will reign forever and ever. The mercies of the Father never departed from Jesus, even when Jesus became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what Jesus is doing at the present is he's building a family and building the spiritual house of God through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's happening to the ends of the earth. So as we watch a video like we did today with the lostness in the world and the different people groups and the need to keep pressing forward and to send missionaries and to send light into the darkness, we're a part of what God is doing in the world. in this kingdom and the Messiah and the Son and what he's been assigned to shall never end. Now, if you want a definition of the kingdom of God, uh, here it is. And I say this fairly often, but I'm going to say it again. It's my definition, so I can own it. Uh, If you don't like it, you can come up with your own definition as long as it's not unbiblical. But the kingdom of God, in just a very basic definition, is the overarching rule and reign of God over all things. Now, that's the broadest possible application that we are saying that there is a sovereign God who is king over all, and he is ruling and reigning over all things. Now, clearly, uh, this rule and reign is ultimately through the hearts of people whose lives are changed by the grace of God. But it's a kingdom over all that cannot be destroyed and will never end. And at the heart of it is the redemptive reign of the Messiah. So that's why when we talk about Christmas and we make these connections... We're making the connection that the greatest gift that's ever been given was given in Christ That he made the way for us To enter into the family of god into the kingdom of god So in these few moments that we have together what I want to share with you Are three characteristics of the kingdom reign of jesus Three characteristics of the kingdom reign of jesus and here's the first The kingdom reign of jesus Is in righteousness It's in righteousness now, let's draw the, the point together here in that we are connected to the kingdom by all that Jesus has done in our repentance and faith in him. When we trust in him as death, burial, and resurrection, we are connected to the kingdom. The standard of righteousness in the Bible is God's righteousness. So God is holy and he's perfect in every way. We cannot attain righteousness on our own, but Jesus exchanged our sin for His righteousness so that one day we can stand before God and we can be accepted and we can be declared righteous in Him. This is the beauty of the gospel. This has a very direct application to your life in the here and now. Because it tells you, first of all, that if you want a relationship with God, it's not going to be based on anything that you have done or you could do. You understand that the religions of the world focus on what people can do to measure up or to make things right with with their version of God christianity is about what God has done do you see the difference it's not about what we do and about how we can measure up or add our works together or somehow bring something to God that's going to make us acceptable it's about what God has already done through his son and The kingdom reign of jesus is in righteousness. There's prophecy focused on the righteousness of jesus As well telling us that he would come to the earth I gave you the reference of zechariah 9 in verse 9 and here's what it says Rejoice greatly daughter zion shout in triumph daughter jerusalem Look your king is coming to you now. Here's how it describes the king he is righteous and victorious humble and riding on a donkey on a colt on the foal of a donkey. Now obviously that's a direct prophecy to the triumphal entry when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and his, he began the last week of his life before the cross. But it's a reminder to us of the character of the king. He is righteous. That means he is thoroughly holy. He is victorious and he's already won the victory. You understand that we are not trying to attain a victory it's not as though there's a competition and god may win or god may lose no god has already won and because god has already won we have already won so we are working from the victory because our king is victorious but even in all of this our king is also humble he's humble and he is our righteousness 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We are declared righteous, fully accepted by God through faith in Jesus, who is our righteousness. So Jesus is our righteousness. But did you know that Jesus is also going to judge in righteousness? In fact, all judgment has been entrusted to the son his judgment will be full it will be fair but you know the main difference between the judgment that Jesus the judgments that Jesus will pass and potentially what our judgments might be like the key difference is Jesus has all the information there's nothing hidden from his sight there's nothing that he doesn't know There's nothing that might occur to him and change his judgment. His judgment is in perfect righteousness. Now the beauty of this is that having been declared righteous in Jesus, covered by the blood, our sins will not be judged in the future. If our sins are judged in the future as followers of Jesus who have placed our faith and trust in him and what he's accomplished, then what that would say is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was insufficient. It was not insufficient in any way. It was perfectly sufficient. It completed everything that God the Father sent him to accomplish. And we will be judged according to our eternal rewards and the responsibilities that we have in the kingdom of God, but our sins have already been judged at the cross. So this is good news for you. Not only that you can be forgiven and that you can go to heaven someday when you die, but this is good news for you right now. It doesn't matter what kind of background you came from. It doesn't matter what kind of foolish things you've done. It doesn't matter how big the pile of iniquities and sins are that you have undertaken. If you are under the blood of Christ, you are forgiven. The gospel sets people free. And that should help you not to continue to live in your sin, but to live in righteousness reflecting that you have been changed Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus judges in righteousness and Jesus rules in righteousness There's a verse in hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8 that says but unto the son he says Your throne, O god is forever and ever A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom Now I want to draw a connection here between hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8 and Psalm 45 in verse 6 and 7. The reason that I draw the connection between Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 8 and Psalm 45 in verse 6 and 7 is that the psalm is quoted from in Hebrews chapter 1. And it celebrates a royal wedding. In fact, the subscription of this psalm says that it is a love psalm. In this psalm, the poet is addressing the bridegroom And he's addressing the bride. Considering other scripture where Christ is referred to as the bridegroom and the church as the bride, it should not surprise us that this is attributed to Christ as the bridegroom. It could not refer to an earthly king because Psalm 45 and verse 6 calls this king God. And says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. These early believers, the early church... They would have known the reference in Hebrews was a reference to Christ. And they would have connected those pieces together. There's also an account in the book of Esther that speaks of a golden scepter. You remember the concept of a scepter? All who came before the king would experience either a golden scepter being held out to them or not. If the golden scepter was held out when you approached the king, then you survived. If it was not held out and you approached the king, then your life was done. You remember how the story goes when, king Esther, when Queen Esther approached the king, she obtained favor in his sight and he held out the scepter to her and the Lord used her to bring a great victory for the Jewish people. We are reminded of the scepter with which Jesus rules. This scepter is a scepter of righteousness, which is the key to the presence of God. We can only approach the throne of God through the righteousness of Jesus. We can only come before the God of all the universe because we stand forgiven in Christ and he sees us through the righteousness of Jesus and not from everything that we've done in the past. We are forgiven. And when we appear before the king, not only will our lives be spared, but our lives will be enriched and blessed for all of eternity. And his throne is forever and ever. You know what a throne is? A throne is a place where a king sits to rule. And when we compare God's throne to a human throne, we see the major difference because of righteousness. All the kingdoms and authorities and nations of the earth, they're temporary at best. We know that from history. But God's throne is forever and ever. And we serve a God who is not limited by time. Eternity was and is to come. And kings come and go, but there is one who remains over all of history, and his name is Jesus. Psalm 22 and verse 28 says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. He is the king of all, the ruler over the nations. The authority belongs to him. 2 Timothy 6 and verse 15 refers to him as the blessed and only potentate. Not a word that we use often, but it's a powerful word. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. The Potentate is the one who possesses the great power. He's the exalted sovereign. He is the one who ultimately rules. And before the incarnation, the manifestation of God in the flesh had not taken place. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons, and now this Son of Man rules and reigns from heaven, and in the future Christ is going to return to physically rule, and we long for that day. The kingdom reign of Jesus is in righteousness. But there's a second characteristic: The kingdom reign of Jesus is through the church. We display our connection to the kingdom by serving the king. The primary way that we use our gifts and we serve the king on this earth in the kingdom is through his church. It's important to note here that the church and the kingdom are closely related, but they are not one in the same. Let me explain. The mission of the church can only be understood in light of the purpose of the kingdom. The kingdom is larger than the church because it's the big picture. But the church is essential to the kingdom. So when God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, he made his people a kingdom of priests. In Peter's writing, he he refers to the church as a kingdom of priests. Then, 2 Peter 1 and verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. Verse 11, For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied to you. The people of Israel were to live under God's direct rule through a monarch. But ultimately, that monarch would be the Messiah. And there is a present future aspect of the kingdom in that Jesus brought the reality of it to the world but yet the fulfillment of it, the consummation of it is still to come in the future. So we know it's certain because God said hey, this is what's going to happen and then we see the progressive revelation of the promise of Messiah and the promise of the gospel all the way back to Genesis 3 then we see the progressive revelation of that in the Old Testament the raising up of Israel as a nation with eternal promises and then The rule and promise of the Messiah coming. And then the church being born, as we've been studying in the book of Acts. Stanley Grydenus said, where the gospel is proclaimed, there is the kingdom of God. When someone repents, it is this Basilia of God that is revealed. And when God's commandment is kept in love, it is the kingdom of God. For that kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy by the Holy Spirit. Remember the words of Jesus when he promised that he was going to build his church and that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it and that discussion that he had with with, uh, Peter and Peter proclaimed that he was the Messiah. And it's important because the keys of the kingdom were a part of the promise of what Jesus was going to do through his church. And the keys of the kingdom represent the authority of the kingdom. So we have this right... To act in the name of Jesus, and it's given by the king to the church So we would say that it's not the government. It's not any other ruler It's the church comprised of forgiven sinners Who were able to carry out the work of God in the kingdom? Kevin DeYoung said the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God surrounded by the kingdom of darkness Now that's true, and I think it is we think about what Jesus said to us as well, that we're supposed to be salt and light. So if the church is existing in the world and all around us is this kingdom of darkness, but yet we're part of the kingdom of light, should we not be faithfully shining the light into the darkness? Is that not the mission of the church? That's what we're carrying out as a part of God's plan for the ages. And Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy... And to bring this to a kingdom reality. But ask this question what does a kingdom centered church look like? Or to say it another way, how can the church of the 21st century impact the world like the church of the first century? Well, we've been studying in the book of Acts, and we know that Jesus left the commandment to make disciples of all nations as recorded in the Gospels and in Acts. And our focus recently has been on this particular thought about the birth of the church and the establishment of the church and what the church is actually to be about. And we've already learned some things from that. We've learned that the church early on was united in prayer, so they were a praying people. Are we characterized? uh, Do we reflect the fact that we are a praying people? Are we a praying people? We should be. Because that's what the early church was. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. They wanted to hear truth. They weren't interested in some drivel that was the ideas of men they wanted the doctrine of God they emphasized fellowship and uh, coming together and working together as the people of God and worship and generosity and evangelism and all these things that go along with being a faithful church but all the purpose of all of that is to, to manifest the kingdom of God on the earth as Jesus is exalted and the knowledge that we are citizens of the kingdom of God should not cause us to ignore or minimize the significance of the present age that we live in. We know so many people around us are in brokenness and rebellion. Church, don't forget what it was like to be lost. Don't forget what it was like to be in need of the gospel. Don't forget what it was like to be on your way to hell rather than on your way to heaven. Remember that people are in the same condition you were in before you came to Christ. And we get to proclaim the good news as a part of his people. And I believe that the kingdom of God is the pinnacle of human history. It is good news that God reigns and he will reign forever. And we know the promise of Scripture that Jesus will triumphantly return to the earth in the future. And I've already referenced the millennial kingdom, but in the millennial kingdom, we will rule as co-heirs with Christ. There'll be a thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus after the tribulation and before the great white throne judgment of the wicked. Jesus will reign as king over Israel and all the nations of the world. The world's going to live in peace during that time and the prophecies given to Israel will be fulfilled. See, all this has contemporary application as well as, I believe, eternal application. And the kingdom of God will encompass the new earth and the new heaven. Jesus said in his ministry on the earth, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the mission of the church. And then the third and final characteristic that I've already touched on is that the kingdom reign of Jesus is eternal. It's eternal. We enter the kingdom through the righteousness of Jesus. We serve in the kingdom through the church. For which Jesus lived and died and now lives again. We praise the eternal king of the kingdom. If you notice how everything in this world' is temporary, you can build the finest house. It can be on the cutting edge of all the technology that there possibly is. I mean, it can be really nice. Keep it long enough, stuff's going to start breaking. Uh, you're going to start having problems. If you leave it the earth will consume it and trees and bushes will grow up over it quickly quicker than you think anybody bought an appliance lately You used to be able to buy an appliance and the appliance would last like decades well you get five years out of it now you start to feel pretty good about an appliance that you buy right why is that they're temporary they're not made to be permanent they're made to have to be replaced businesses go under Schools close, people come and go. Everything that we know in the world is finite. And we cannot and must not put our hope in the temporary nature of the world. We must put our hope in the Messiah who rules forever. Because this is a permanent focus. And the reign of the offspring of David is said to be established forever in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16. Jesus has an eternal past and he has an eternal future. Remember the prophecy of Micah in Micah 5 in verse 2? Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. Listen to this. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. A prophecy that the Messiah, the God-man, would be born in Bethlehem. A unique being with deity and humanity existing in the same person. Jesus Proclaimed his eternal existence. Remember when he said, Before Abraham was, I am? He was connecting himself to the eternal I am, that this was God who was before them. And I hold to the eternal sonship of Jesus, meaning that there was never a time when He was not the Son of God and that the relationship of the Trinity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit has always existed. And I believe what the truth of the Bible says, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's really up to you. Either you can hang on to stuff that's going to break and going to rust and going to be thrown away in the future. You can build your life on experiences that last for a moment, but they're gone and all you have is the picture and the memory. Or you can build your life on Jesus Christ who is eternal. His kingdom is eternal. And Jesus claimed that for himself. And it's interesting that the word translated as forever in 2 Samuel 6. Seven actually conveys the idea of either an undetermined long period of time or it speaks of eternity in the future. But here's the beauty of it. In both, the outcome is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. It's certain because the victory has already been won. And the promise to David would be fulfilled in Jesus that his kingdom would never have an end because he conquered death. God even told Mary in Luke 1 and verse 33 that Jesus would rule forever. Or What about the vision of John in Revelation that points to the eternal reign of Jesus? Revelation 11 and verse 15 says, The kingdoms of the world have become our Lord's and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So here's what we know. We know that the nations and the peoples will be judged by Christ. We know that he will take his saints into the eternal kingdom. And we know that the 24 elders around God's throne worship God and they give him thanks because he has worked in great power. And now he rules and reigns for eternity. There's a story from uh, 1829. The author Christopher North was reflecting on the British Empire. And at that time, the British Empire was unlike any other kingdom that had been known. I mean, it was massive. The reach, the power, the wealth, um, everything about it was amazing. And he referred to the empire of that king as, and I quote, his majesty's dominions on which the sun never sets. This is 1829. Impressive. Powerful, but the british empire disintegrated into almost nothing following world war ii i mean it went from something grand to something that didn't amount to a whole lot on the world stage and that's a reminder to us of what happens to the kingdoms of this earth isaiah in his prophecy saw that jesus kingdom has no limits in space or time he said, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign from that time on and forever. Now for unbelievers, this is terrifying because there is no time or place where the reign of Christ can be escaped. But for believers, it strengthens our faith because we, what, we look at the headlines, we, we read the app on our phone, we... We might watch a little bit of the news and we see that everything seems like it's just spinning out of control and there's darkness everywhere and we don't know what's going to happen next and we've got all these things that make us fearful. And then we come back to this anchor. We come back to this foundation and we say, yes, we do have something to anchor our lives to because Jesus is Lord and the reign of Jesus is eternal. We don't have to worry that it's going to end. Because it's guaranteed, because everything that God has said that He would do in the past, God has accomplished. And everything that God says He will do in the future, God will accomplish. And that gives us hope, because we have a certainty. And in the end, Jesus is going to put all of His enemies under His feet, and He's going to hand the kingdom over to the Father. But His reign's not going to end at that time. But rather, the reign of the triune God will exist for all of eternity. And while the kingdoms of the world are ruled by various kings and leaders, there's only one king of kings and lord of lords. And he is king of kings and lord of lords over earth and heaven and all of eternity. His reign is eternal. Now I'll close with this, the words from the Lord's Prayer that will be familiar to you. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now listen to me carefully. A high theology should produce a high doxology. Meaning that if we look to the Word and we look to the eternal God, the one who made the covenant, who sent his Son, then that's going to produce in us a tremendous amount of praise. And worship. Because the kingdom and the power belong to God, all of the glory rightfully belongs to Him. And because His kingdom and power are without end, our praise will be without ceasing. Now, Jesus taught His disciples to conclude their prayers with the word Amen. The word comes from a root word meaning to be firm and secure. Amen came to mean it is immovably true. So when we say amen, here's what we're saying. We're saying amen to all we know to be true about God. We're saying amen to the power that we can see around us and in all of creation and what God has done through His Word. We say amen to the Savior because we know that he left the glory of heaven and he came to this earth. He took on flesh. He was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. He willingly submitted himself to death on the cross to take the penalty that we rightly deserved. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and on the third day he rose from the dead. And the Bible says that even now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we come together to worship on this Sunday before christmas week and we say jesus is lord and we say amen to all that he is we don't see him as remaining as a baby in the manger although that is significant because of the purpose of the incarnation we see him now as the exalted king and that's why we exist on this earth is to exalt the king